This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's office in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Warren Zanes discusses Petty, his new biography of rocker Tom Petty. Then PW executive editor Jonathan Segura gives us an update on coloring books for adults. But first, we've got a very special guest, Pushcart Press founder Bill Henderson, here to help us celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Pushcart Prize for Literature. Hello, Bill. Great to have you on the show. Hello. Good to be here. So, 40 years. How has it lasted this long? Uh, it's lasted this long because the, uh, the spirit of the of writers and, and little publishers around the country and around the world uh, will not be denied by the commercial establishment, which seeks to make money out of words, which I think is not... Not a nice thing. (laughs) (laughs) So um, authors really need to to get their voices out there, but that doesn't always tie into these commercial interests. You got it. Uh, It doesn't happen much more, especially as uh, the world becomes more and more about the bottom line and uh, stockholders demand their their piece of the action. Uh, And editors uh, worry about their, their salaries and getting fired and the whole thing starts to fall apart from Kindle and and um, the, the industry, the book publishing industry, and the magazine publishers in an absolute uproar, as as you guys know at Publishers Weekly. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, things things are things are in an uproar. It's chaos, chaos everywhere. Uh, but um, I like to think that writers will not be swept away by the commercial um, demands and, and have their own voices in small presses, which do not seek to make a profit only to publish beautiful things. So the Bushcart Prize is for works published in small presses, small zines, and usually when you think of a prize, you think of someone up on stage handing out little statuettes. You do it differently. Tell us a little bit about the prize itself. Yeah, the prize is you get a book. Um, There's no money involved for anybody here. Uh, And I wish we could have a big uh, Oscar award ceremony, which would be terrific, except we're scattered all around the world. Uh, one of the things about the Internet, which I don't like very much usually, being mostly a Luddite, is that we are now getting uh, nominations from little magazines in Romania, Indonesia, China, England, certainly France. Uh, and uh, in the early days, we featured stuff from the Russian Samizdat because they were they were publishing stuff under the communist rule. And if, if you published a little magazine in Russia in those days, you could lose your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not what happened to little presses in this country. You mostly just get ignored. Um, so uh, there's no there's no award ceremony. It's just the book and um, a, a degree of satisfaction. Somebody loved your stuff. 
So uh, tell us about the origination of this prize. And we, there were quite a few, I mean, really outstanding names. Anis Nen, Ishmael Reed, Joyce Carol Oates, Ralph Ellison. And this just, uh, the list goes on when this first came together 40 years ago. Right. Well, I think it was a, just a, a brainstorm I had when I was out in um, California on vacation from commercial publishing. I, I was an editor at Doubleday and for a brief time at, at Putnam. And I was sitting around the Mediterranean Cafe, hello, Berkeley, California, and they know the Mediterranean. I was sitting there writing in my diary, and I just jotted a little note down, said, how about a best of the small presses? And didn't think much about it. And um, then I, that summer I wrote to some people, uh, and the people you mentioned, uh, literary icons all, and said, do you think this is a good idea? Would you help? And they, a lot of them chipped in and said, sure, absolutely. It's a, it's a great idea. So I was kind of surprised that there was so much enthusiasm, and I just ran with it. And uh, they stuck by me, and, and off we went. I didn't think anybody would be that interested in uh, such a, a compilation, but it turned out that not only were these writers interested, but writers everywhere were and people in the commercial establishment who are some are my very good friends uh, are sick and tired of, of all the money demands on them too back in those days and of course now even more so and they said what a terrific idea so uh, it it really took off and i was totally amazed and i think everybody else was and i'm still amazed 40 years later uh, about the enthusiasm for for the pushcart prize um, it just keeps going on and on, and younger and younger writers um, get involved, and, and uh, it renews itself every year. It's it's a great joy. So when this first originated, there must have been a some sort of philosophy, that an overriding philosophy that, uh, that you all could agree on. And what was that? Well, I think it's just that writers shouldn't be crushed by commercialism. Uh, we all, um, so-called serious people, I'm not very serious to tell you the truth, but <laughs> people who think we have a vision, uh, it shouldn't be told your vision cannot be shown to the world because it won't make money. And that's that was the idea, that we had to get the commercial people off our backs. And in the little magazines and, and small book presses, we will, we will attempt to reach the world without... Without the double days, with, without with double days now, a mere shade of its former self. By the way, when I was an editor there, it was the largest publisher in the world. Hmm. Uh, now it's barely an imprint, but um, that was the idea um, off our backs, and it was a real revolution. And I think it's it certainly is continuing today. Tell us about some of the other books that you put out with Pushcart Press. Uh, well, I, I did something called the Editor's Book Award, which, um, in which an editor who works in the dreaded commercial house and probably resents the sales manager terrifically gets to nominate a manuscript that the sales manager said, we can't sell this. And for 22 years, I've published such a book on the editor's nomination. The editor nominated the manuscript, and, and we had a look, and, and some of them did pretty well. Um, Rick Moody was such a... Uh, a writer in the early days of the Editor's Book Award. Um, mm. We do a few fun books, quotation books, like the Writer's Quotation Book, which sold many, many copies, 75,000 copies. They may sound commercial for a minute. Um, and uh, a book called Rotten Reviews, which uh, collected the really lousy reviews from people like Melville and, and uh, Whitman and hundreds of other writers who turned out to be classics. 
but in their day, were disparaged. Uh, so that that was a, a lot of fun to do and stick it to them again. Uh, that was a bestseller, by the way, if you want to use that awful term. And for two weeks, we were on the Washington Post bestseller list, <laughs> which was kind of funny. So you you have to deal with these commercial aspects. Some the money for printing and publishing these books has to come from somewhere. Um, how do you do that without facing the same commercial pressures that uh, the the whole point of the prize is to circumvent? Yeah, well, there are absolutely no commercial pressures on me. I wouldn't allow it. Um, the book sells and it, it pays back the printing costs and not much else. But we have a wonderful distributor in W.W. W. Norton Company who has stuck with me for most of these 40 years. And Norton sells enough books and um, people need it and love it enough that uh, it pays for itself and always has. There's um, much left over, but we do okay. There's never any, any idea about commerce uh, in the Pushcart Prize. We, we seek to avoid such ideas. So um, what are your plans for the future of the prize for the next 40 years and beyond? Uh, I have to stay alive for a couple of decades more. That'd be nice. Uh, <laughs> I'll take tomorrow, frankly. But, uh, but uh, I think we're going to be okay. I'm trying to raise an endowment, so all you people with deep pockets out there want to be part of the Bushcart Prize Fellowship's endowment. We could use some patrons. Uh, to assure that this thing will go on. And there aren't many holy fools like me and, and my friends who will work for absolutely nothing to get the word out. Um, but it'll continue going because it has for 40 years. I would have thought, it would, as I've said, it would be gone in one edition, but people love this idea, and, and they keep uh, keep supporting it financially and, most importantly, with their spirit. You mentioned the Internet uh, making your life easier in some ways, if not in all ways. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, digital publishing, the, the explosion of self-publishing? Is that making life easier or harder for you? Uh, I, I, I'm, have, I'm very wary of all this um, digital stuff, this um, Internet stuff, because I think it's much too easy for a writer to just burp something out. That's my polite word. Um, that they've just scribbled and called themselves a published poet. It takes work, hard, hard work, some suffering, a little bit of thinking, a great deal of feeling to publish and to write a great work. And today it's much too easy to delude yourself that you're a writer just because you can knock something out on your computer and set it out into the world. I think freedom is wonderful, but writers have to be very, very careful uh, that they're the, only, the worst judge of any piece of work is the writer. Uh, and you cannot judge whether your work is ready for publication for two or three years at least. You should take everything and throw it in a drawer and look at it two or three years later, not burp it out over the Internet. Well, I'd like to talk about uh, this current issue, the, the, the 40th anniversary issue. Um, I, I, it bound to have some, some really great pieces in there. Can you tell us a little bit about it, just a couple of pieces that might be included? Well, it's just a terrific issue, it, it, and uh, the reviews have been fantastic so far, including the sweet people at Publishers Weekly, who, by the way, have been reviewing every edition mm. for the past 40 years. Uh, which is just wonderful. Uh, the uh, the lead story is one that I absolutely love by Zadie Smith. It's from the Paris Review, and it is 
probably the most hilarious, sad, funny story I've ever read. So that that's a standout. Um, and there are so many others, it's, it's very hard to, to... In my introduction, I never talk about what's in the book, because there's so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. Wendell Berry has a great story called The Branch Way of Doing. I love Wendell's stuff. Uh, there's... Um, well, here's uh, Joanna Scott has a wonderful story, The Knowledge Gallery from uh, Conjunctions. Um, and I'm just telling you people, then Ellen Bass has a poem from Waiting for, for Rain. Waiting for Rain. Um, Lisa Lee, Julia's story, Anthony Doerr, best-selling guy, but I'm not going to hold it against him, D-O-E-R-R, Thing with Feathers that Purchase in the Soul. Uh, that's one of them, from Tin House, I believe. Um, there are 52 presses represented mm. and 69 selections. Porn, a great story, a great poem by Dorothy Alasky, hilarious. Map Reading by Richard Balish, a, a great, great story. Uh, they're all absolutely terrific. I, I can't, uh, it's very hard to pick. So are there any particular venues that you find send you great work year after year, prize-worthy work? Well, there are certainly outstanding presses. Um, but we we look at all of them uh, equally, mm-hmm. uh, and every, each year um, the, the presses have to compete, if you will, against each other. I mean, here in this book, there's a there's Paris Review up front, then a press called Cave Wall, then there's American Poetry Review, uh, Tiger Tiger Bark Press, Salmagundi, Zoetrope, The Sun, N Plus One, Gigantic, Tar River. Mm-hmm. Somerset Review, Image, Iowa Review. It goes on and on. Poetry, One Story, Granta, uh, Prism, Noon. Uh, so many presses that are are known, and others I've never even heard of before. It's the same for every edition. At least usually, at least fifty presses. And uh, what's your process for making your selections? How does it work? I know you get the final say, but how does everything get filtered through to you? Uh, everything gets read. Uh, it starts out, of course, with the nominating editor at the press, and then it goes um, to us, to our, our readers. We have two poets that are new every year, and uh, and we have a, three or four read, prose readers, and it finally comes down to me you know, where the buck stops. And one final question. Have you seen fiction change uh, over the last four decades? Nope, I can't say as I have. Um, a great story is a great story. Um, perhaps over the last 2,000 years, there's been a great change, but I, I think it's just the only change I've seen in the, in the fiction and the poetry and, and, the, and the essays is they've gotten better and better and better over the 40 years. It's just uh, astonishing how in this uh, ticky-tack world where money is the, the great judge uh, that um, these, these writers have remained true to themselves. And it just gets better and better. I would have thought the opposite, frankly, if you told me 40 years ago that things were going to be so good in the literary world. Uh, I would have said, no way, it's just getting, it's a nightmare out there. But it's not. Um, the writers have held their heads up, and we're doing just fine. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And here's to another 40 years, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Warren Zanes tells us about the unlikely rise of Tom Petty. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adrian Tomina, the creator of Killing and Dying, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Warren Zanes on the line. His new book is Petty, about Tom Petty. Hello, Warren. So glad you could join us. Oh, thank you for having me. So uh, what intrigued you about Tom Petty, and, and what made you decide to write a biography of him? Well, what intrigues me today is what intrigued me at age 11 when I first heard breakdown and that is the songs he's he's always been a song guy and i think he's he's a he's a writer that i put in the class of the buddy hollies and the hank williams you know guys with very deep catalogs that from a distance seem like to have a kind of ease to them but behind which there's a lot of work and There's not just work behind the songs, but there's always a more complicated character than we at first assume is behind those songs. So to me, writing the book was finding more out about the guy behind the material that I loved as much as I have for my entire adult life. In our starred review of Petty, we say, and this is just a bit of a long quote, but Zane's a musician who toured with Tom Petty, narrates this balanced chronicle of Petty's career with the detached delivery of a seasoned journalist combined with the intimacy of a friend bold enough to dig deep beneath the service of his own musical hero. How did you manage to do this? Well, Tom Petty first knew me as the kid with the chipped front tooth in the opening band who, you know, was a little sloppy backstage. And, you know, I think he, he, he recognized, you know, a little bit of himself and the hundreds of other kids that he knew who were raised on rock and roll. So I think there were some natural sympathies there, you know, but I was, I was in my late teens when I first met him. And then within a few years, he brought my band, the Del Fuego's, out on tour to open for the Heartbreakers on a summer tour. So he, he did. He sang a harmony on one of our records and then brought us out on tour. And that was not long before I left the music business. So I, you know, mm-hmm. I was in a, the Del Fuegos with my brother, mm-hmm. and you know, just being a brother is hard enough. Being in a rock and roll band with your brother—that's <laughs> that's a hell of a job that I would recommend to no one. And um, I went back to, I didn't go back to school, I hadn't ever gone to college, and I went and got a BA and two masters and a PhD, and it was the perfect education, because the most important degree was five years in rock and roll band, and then 12 years in the university to process what I'd been through in a rock and roll band, Mm -hmm. and at the end of, of that time, while I was writing my dissertation, a couple things happened. One was I got signed to a record deal by the Dust Brothers, who had pretty recently at that time made Beck's Odelay and Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique and done some Rolling Stones stuff. So they signed me to a record deal, and then I got a book deal in the 33 and a third series. And so my hybrid identity was really emerging at that time. 
And the book that I wrote for the 33 and a third series got into Tom Petty's hands. And the next thing I know, I got uh, an email from his management saying, Tom read your book and would like to, you know, to take you out to dinner so you guys could talk about it. And, and, uh, and I just want to, and this is the, the book we're talking about is the Dusty Springfield. Yeah, Dusty in Memphis. Yeah. It's, it's number one in the uh, 33 and a third series, which is now up to about 80 volumes. Wow. And so I, I did this dinner with Tom Petty, and at the end of the meal, you know, we'd just been talking music, you know. He was wondering, you know, had I been lost on a desert island, that kind of thing. And no, I was in the university, similar to a desert island, but, you know, not exactly the same. And then he said... You know, I read your book twice, and at the end of it, I wrote this song that was inspired by the book, and I can't usually trace inspiration. And that, that you know, for a guy who left rock and roll hmm. and went into the university to hear from his musical hero that it's, that had done anything to influence the writing of a song, that was astounding to me. And it was the song Down South, which is on his Highway Companion record. Hmm. And then we were into chapter two of our relationship. And what was interesting to me, you know, in retrospect, he was seeing me as a writer because of that book before I was yet bold enough to see myself as a writer. Mm-hmm. So it was, in a way, the ultimate validation. Oh, sure. And, and, and then, you know, then I, then I started doing other writing projects for them and, you know, years few years in, he, he approached me about the idea of a biography. So it was his idea, it was him coming up to you and saying, I want you to do for me what you did for Dusty Springfield, basically. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was Tom coming to me. I mean, I, I think he knew that this, this guy hanging around who always had a, a, a pen in his pocket had ambitions of that kind, but it was Tom coming to me and saying, would you be interested you know, me saying yes, and then the interesting part of, of that moment is how quickly Tom formulated the framework for the project, which was, this is not a co-write, this is not ghost-written, and this is not authorized. Mm. And, and he said, you know, this is your book. I am not going to tell you what's in or what's out, and all I ask is that at the end of the process, before publication, I get to read it and respond to anything I feel the need to respond to. And I asked him, well, you know, if you're giving me full access, why not authorized? And he said, when I see authorized on the front of a book, I know it's bullshit. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, you know, I had, I had never been... You know, Tom Petty's got this slow southern drawl, and and I think we sometimes make assumptions that the pace of the voice is the pace of the mind, Hmm. and not so. His mind is very fast. Now, I think I also had that reaction to authorized books, but I'd never thought about it. he, He was just out in front on this one, and that framework that he himself designed in the space of two minutes and standing in his driveway... Uh, he held to, beginning to end. And at the end, some of the content was it was difficult. He had been very candid in interviews. And there were 
private parts of his life that were now in this manuscript. And he stuck to what he had promised, which was, it was my book. And at that point, I was, you know, in that kind of ethical situation where you say, I'm working for the reader. I'm not working for him. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I knew he was going to come out dignified, but I also knew he set it up the way he did because he wanted an honest book. If you start reading a music bio and you get the whiff of anything but honesty, you're going to lose your interest. You know, it, it's honesty that compels us. So he knew that and he set up a framework that allowed that and then he stuck to it. So um, you had access, obviously, not just to him, but also to uh, some of his former bandmates. What was what was that like? I mean, there seems to have been a bit of acrimony there. Yeah, well, the, the Tom Petty story is, at the same time, the story of a band. Mm. You know, that's, he's, he's been a band leader for you know, most of his life, and that that band is not just enormously important to him, but it's important to the guys who are in that band. Repeatedly, I heard them saying, I wouldn't want to be the guy that ended this. You know, very, you know, like three members used almost the same words independently of one another. So they put a high value on this. But make no mistake, the band that backstage is doing group hugs and high-fiving, that's the band that's not going to be together next year. The band that stays together is the one that erects some boundaries. And they, they do what they have to do at times, which is to put business before friendship. And it's funny, I was only in a band for five years, and I can still wake up in the middle of the night mad at the other guitar player. <laughs> and this was, this was years ago. You know, these guys are coming up on 40 years in the band, so... I knew when I was going to those interviews, and again, Tom and his management, every interview I asked for, they helped me get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I knew I was going into deep emotional territory. The most important of the interviews, really, and the, and the one that I was afraid I wasn't going to get was with Stan Lynch. You know, outside of Tom Petty, Stan Lynch was a, a, kind of a, a foil. Um, but he was uh, someone with whom Petty had a lot of friction um, and and a lot of kind of, you know, creative alignment, uh, depending on the day. And, you know, Stan said no to interviews, you know, three or four times. And finally, I just said, I'll come to your door in Florida. Give me 20 minutes. You want me to leave after that? And I promise you I'll leave. And... He said he finally said yes, and then he did eight hours. Wow! Wow! And and I needed that voice. Were there uh, were there any people who refused to talk to you or didn't want to talk to you, and you weren't able to get a hold no. of? No. Great. I mean, I could I could have kept going as with any project of this kind. When you're talking about decades like this, you could always keep interviewing. And, and I, I knew that I didn't want this to be, uh, you know, to, to try to catalog every day of this band. I, I wanted 
much more. I was thinking more with fiction in mind. I I wanted I wanted characters. I wanted conflict. I wanted a good narrative arc. And mm. so I I thought more about that than oh I have to interview blank. I felt like I got I got the right people. Always could have done more, but I didn't run into anyone who said no. You know, the first question was always, um, this is with Tom's approval, right? And I'm like, yeah, you heard it from Tony, his manager. He's like, okay, I just want to make sure. Everyone's very, very respectful of him. Mm. And, but once they, once they knew that Tom had given the green light, everyone was really, you know, unguarded. So I, I want to talk a little bit about about Tom and and about uh, just what you uncovered uh, about his upbringing in Gainesville, Florida, maybe, um, and how that might have shaped his music from your from your research. The I think the two biggest pieces to understand the songwriter, uh, to understand that voice, uh, you know, the abusive relationship. Um, you know, his father's physically abusive, that abusive relationship, and unrequited love at, you know, in the teen, preteen years. I think those two things, you know, combined with this, you know, moment where the Beatles come. You know, Beatles on Ed Sullivan really can't be overstated mm. because they, they come and the message to young America, and it really was like directly to young America, was you can do this, this is your culture, you're the right one to have a voice here, and you know, the next day, garage bands spring up across the country. So that combination of a kid who didn't understand why his father treated him the way he did, and it was a brutal treatment, and who then goes outside this, you know, when he first has feelings of, you know, call it a crush, but I would just call it love because I think those young experiences are as intense as adult experiences. And then he then he has those feelings, and the suggestion is, oh my God, there's another world beyond my family, and it's going to be great. And then it's unrequited, mm. and he and he's crushed. You know, leaves the yard just to get crushed again. And then the Beatles appear, and they say, wait, here's another option and it works, you know. I think then he's, he, he arrives into popular music culture, and he's got ambitions because of that father and that girl. He's got something he wants to say about who he is, and there's just there's a fire in him that I think it, it remains today because he's pursuing his next record like it's his most important, and he's 65, you know, but he's coming from uh, a particular background that kicked off just ambitions. But we should, our children should be so lucky to have that kind of moment where, you know, something like the Beatles happens and they feel so empowered. You can't take that out of the equation. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Warren Zanes, author of Petty, the new biography of Tom Petty, which we can't say is authorized, uh, but you certainly had every kind of access. And um, tell us a little bit more about Petty's career, his early career following that revelation, that moment when he realizes he has a voice, he gets to use that voice, he is allowed to go out there and shape his own life. Well, he, he, you know, coming out of Gainesville, Florida, is is really important. I think, you know, Tom Petty's a North Florida guy, and it doesn't matter how long he's lived in California. Mm. It's like he's a North Florida guy, and in Gainesville, he is playing in clubs with people, you know, like Don Felder and Bernie Ledden, uh, who are in the Eagles. Uh, down the road, you have the Almond Brothers. Leonard Skinner was opening up for Petty's band Mud Crutch. There's a lot of talent in that town and in that area. And so you could not, you know, it was different from the punk era. You know, it was still, it was still youth. It was still a little bit street. Um, but the punk era, you could, you know, learn three chords and form a band the next week. Mm-hmm. And, this, and this time, you had to be good. You know, Don Felder didn't get into the Eagles because they thought he was, uh, you know, an interesting guy with a lot of attitude. He was an incredible guitar player. So they had there was a kind of punk attitude, you know, in the that those pre-punk years. But they were also really good players. So by the time Petty goes out to Los Angeles with a demo tape, you know, that band is pretty evolved. And it's also a different time in the industry where they went no meetings on the books. They just walked up to record labels, you know, with cassettes. I don't even think it was cassettes. I think it was reel-to-reels. Mm. And wow. they got meetings. That doesn't happen like that now. Uh, this, so this, this is in, like, you know, mid-'70s. And you could still get some, you could go up to 20 record companies in a day. And you could be heard. And so they get a deal, you know, it's propelled by Petty's ambitions. He's really emerging as a songwriter and a singer and a band leader. And then the the most important thing that comes after that is a, a kind of mentor relationship with Denny Cordell, who signs them to Shelter Records. And the, you know, the mentors become the producers and those outside the band but close to the band collaborators are just very, very important. So can you tell us a little bit about the formation of the Heartbreakers? And, I mean, that seemed to be uh, a, a lot of things kind of coming together uh, that weren't necessarily planned. Yeah, well, the, the Heartbreakers, so, so they, they go out to California as Mud Crutch, the band that Betty recently reformed, which is another beautiful petty move to me but they go out as mud crutch and you know what they, what they discover then it's like to, to be a band playing live on the stage is different from being a band making records in the studio and that transition doesn't go equally well for all bands you know the Beatles kind of sailed in there and their first record they're really doing their live act and it like jumps out of the speakers as a record mm. 
mud mud crutch didn't have that same experience so the label started to lose faith it's getting shaky and finally Danny Cordell who signed him to shelter says you know I'm keeping Tom but I don't want the band and mud crutch breaks up and you in mud crutch you've got Petty and two other members who are future heartbreakers but they come back together when Ben Montench has a session just to cut his own demos, and he and Stan Lynch, all these Gainesville expatriates now in Los Angeles, kind of come together one night for a Ben Montench project. And Petty, Petty got a call because Ben Mont wanted him to play harmonica on something. And he walks in, and there's his band. And all he's got to do is steal it from the keyboard player. <laughs> and, and he does. Like like a like a thief in the night. You 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 go to bed in one bed and you wake up in another band. Hey, all's fair in love, war and rock and roll. So, um in Mark's Mark's got this Florida connection. I know less about these things. Yeah, um, you know, so I went to University of Florida for a year and I remember the Tom Petty house uh at the time this was back in 85. It was uh it was it if if I remember correctly, uh owned or rented by a, a group of deadheads who would have weekend parties there. Uh and that's how we would know people would like where are we going tonight? It's like going to the Petty house. Um I, what, what is that like now as you go back there? Or even um, if Petty well, goes back I, there at all? I went, when we went through um, the first time, we played at Dubs where right. the Mud Crutch used to play. This is when I was in the Del Fuegos. And then we went and we found the Petty house. And, um, you know, we took our, we loved Tom Petty. So we found the house. We took our pictures in front of the house. And, you know, I, I should have like put one in the back of the book. Um, we had the wrong house, completely <laughs> the wrong house. Uh, but it worked for us for a number of years until somebody said he wasn't in a two-story house. <laughs> uh, but but to me, like because the songs have have rooted themselves into to me as they have, that sounds a little bit like a living museum. You know, I was down there last, and I was by myself, and you know, I had Ben Montench on the phone, and he's giving me directions to go see his house. And he said, you know, my, if my sister's home, you know, you can go in. And then I drove by Tom's house, and, you know, then you go, I was looking for Mud Crutch Farm, and, it, you know, it's, it's fantastic, <laughs> because I'll tell, I'm, I'm going to tell you a related story, and this is when I when I quit the Del Fuegos. I remember sitting at Tom Petty's house with him, and it was just the two of us in his office at his house. This is after we toured with him, and there I am, a kid, out of my band, and we're in his office, and we smoke a little pot, which probably undid my mooring. And <laughs> then I'm telling him about my next band, and that I'm going to stay out in L.A. and I'm going to form a band there and I'm going to, you know, take over the world. That's always the idea. And he just looks at me and says, this isn't where bands come from. you got to go back home. And it was, it was very defeating to hear that in that moment, but it was, it's so important to his idea about music. And what he was really saying was, you know, I don't want to see a band from Los Angeles. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I want to see a band from some small town that works its ass off to figure out, you know, who they are as a collective and then comes out here to seek something bigger. But it starts over there, you know, and it starts with, you know, not guys who have a bunch of chops. It's guys who find their chops. They figure this thing out. You know, you don't get a get you don't get to start from midway through. You gotta start from the beginning. Go home. Concord, New Hampshire would be where your band is. And at that time in my life I was like, God no, Concord, New Hampshire <laughs> You know. And, you know, Jacob Dillon says this at the end of the book. He's like, you know, not only does it not happen in Los Angeles, it doesn't happen when you're in your 30s. You know, it's best in your teens Mm. and, you know, early 20s. Like, forget super groups. You know, you start from a place where you're off, you know, you're somewhere out there on the map. Mm. You're not in that, that big city of entertainment. And... You know, there's nobody super in your group. And you're figuring it out together, and guys fall away. Some stick to it. Positions change. You know, a leader kind of comes to the front through whatever kind of, you know, stress and strain is necessary. And I think you can't bypass that process. And Petty went through it 100% back in Gainesville. And... When he came to Los Angeles, he he knew who he was and what he was there to do. So I'm just loving sitting here listening to you tell all these stories. And uh, your readers are going to have that opportunity, too, because you're recording the audiobook of your book. What's that process like? Um, It requires a lot of tea with lemon and honey. <laughs> I made the decision to do it myself because I listened to the audiobook for my Dusty in Memphis volume and I felt like, you know, they'd hired a, a bad actor to to do the audiobook. Mm-hmm. And it I just I listened and I thought, that's not the book I wrote. You know, what's he reading? And you know the act of reading aloud is an act of interpretation. And so, uh, you know, my agent was saying, you know, this is, this is terrible work, <laughs> reading books. Uh, I recommend you don't do it. The, the pay isn't good. Uh, it hurts. And, and I said, I've got to do it. I mm-hmm. can't have someone changing the meaning of what I wrote. So the process for me, what's interesting, I'm finding out as I go, but you really got to bear down to read those words in the way that you wrote them. And so there's a process of rediscovering, you know, what was the meaning I was trying to arrive at by putting the words in that order? You know, where does the emphasis come? And sometimes I'm getting my own writing wrong and I have to back up. Um, But I I just wanted to be right. I think fiction can be different because... There's, there's necessarily a more you know, theatrical aspect, but this was more about a very particular story that needed to be rooted in you know, Tom Petty's truth, my telling of it. And I, I had to be the person, for better or worse. You know, I don't know if it's going to be difficult to live with me you know, talking in your ear for that long, 
but it had to be me, I think. So, um, as you mentioned, you wrote about Dusty Springfield. You've written about Tom Petty. Do you have anybody in mind for your next book? You know what? I, I, I do, but I, I'm, I'm maybe just, like, too superstitious. Um, so I feel like I can't say it, you know. But there, there are people out there. You know, I'm, I, I'm a listener. Uh, you know, I, I, when I listen to some records, I just feel like I want to know more about the person. Where did this song come from? You know, there's songs. Sometimes Tom Petty is far more eccentric than people think because he's had so many hits. But there are times I'll listen to a Tom Petty and go, how did this guy arrive at, at this? And that's the energy behind wanting to write a biography. So it's the people who I have that feeling, like there's some mystery, you know, like how could they possibly have come up with this? It's probably both a mind and instinct thing. But those are the artists I'm drawn to, and they're out there. But I'm also interested in long careers and seeing people change and seeing people uh, get lost and then refine themselves. You know, all the things that Petty's story offered me, I want to find another like that. Well, it sounds like you've got a, a pretty tall order ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my sister uh, read the first paragraph of the Petty book, and she said, promise me now you will never write a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the first paragraph, I kind of like... Uh, I. You know, I reveal way too much of my family. And then I move on. I said to my sister, I said, hey, you never come in after the first paragraph. <laughs> but she said, I didn't know you avoided me in school. <laughs> You'll have to look at the first paragraph. Um, well, uh, so it's not going to be a memoir because I promised my sister I wouldn't do it. <laughs> well, that's very, very thoughtful of you. You'll have to, to open up somebody else's life instead. Exactly. <laughs> We've been talking with Warren Zanes. You can find his book, Petty, a biography, in stores right now. Warren, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Oh, this is fun. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Executive Editor Jonathan Segura talks about coloring books for adults, so stay tuned. Hi, my name is James McClintock. I'm the author of A Naturalist Goes Fishing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Executive Editor Jonathan Segura is here to bring us up to date on coloring books for grown-ups. Hi, Johnny. Hello. So, uh, are you a coloring book fan yourself? Getting to be. Getting to be. Um, I... uh, this past week, I had a giant uh, stack of them delivered to my desk. It's probably a good, I don't know, foot foot and a half tall. Wow! Um, you've Mark was by earlier today yeah. to see them, um, yeah. and uh, I tell you, whatever you're into, whatever you're into, there is a coloring book for that. So Absolutely. this this market has just exploded. Um, what what happened? <laughs> How did this happen? Um, you know, I, I I think what happened is, uh, you know, people are are doing. Uh, they got into coloring books as a way to sort of unwind. It's a stress reliever. Is sort of um, the the main driver of this trend, and also it's reflected in many of of the book titles. They're called stuff like Color Me Calm. You know, Color Me Calm. 
There's a lot of, of you know, reference to stress relieving uh, and stress relief patterns in there, anti-anxiety. Um, and, you know, I mean, it seems like every time you turn, turn around, you're hearing about how, you know, people are more stressed out than ever. Um, and apparently what they're doing uh, to combat that is to turn to coloring books, um, which is probably cheaper than Valium, I guess. And I've, probably cheaper than Needlepoint. Uh, you oh, just yeah. carry it with no, you. you let know? I let mean, me something... tell you, as, as a yeah. person who does a lot of handicrafts, <laughs> right. those craft supplies add up. If all you <laughs> oh, need is, yeah. is, a, is a book and some pencils, um, that is definitely on the on the cheap end of most stress-relieving craft things. So we have a, a story on this coming out on Monday. What are we looking at? Do we have do we have yet the sales figures or, or what? Like what what quantity are we looking at? Um, year to date, um, I mean hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Uh, wow! It's 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 uh, it's it's huge. It's huge for for publishing this year. Um, it's the the big the big. Uh, author, you know, who who has sort of been like the the queen of coloring for this is this woman Johanna Basford. She's a Scottish artist, and she has three books. Um, two uh, have been out from her original publisher Lawrence King, and her new one, which just came out two weeks ago, I believe it was, uh, is with Penguin now. And that book, his first week out, sold fifty five thousand copies, and it was the number two selling book in the country, uh, behind John Grisham. And I believe it was last week our, on our trade paper bestseller list, I, nearly half the list, I think it's 12 out of the 25 titles on it were coloring books. So, That's I mean, huge. it's not, it's not a, it's not a, like a little isolated incident. Right. So, um, so you read John Grisham to wind yourself up and then you do some coloring to calm yourself right. down. Right. Those cliffhanger, those cliffhanger chapters, you know, you, you, if you can't go on, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> grab color me calm. Or, you I know. need to color, man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now I've, I've seen a lot of coloring apps for tablets and things like that. Um, but people seem to really be going to the tactility of having pencil on paper is this is this part of a sort of anti-digital thing or it's it's just better that way you know i don't know if it's so much anti-digital as i think people enjoy the the sort of getting away from a screen break basically mm-hmm. so i guess in that way it is anti-digital in that you know it's a piece of paper rather than a screen um and surely there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in it as something you did as a child when you're were you know a lot less stressed out about things and it was mm-hmm. just a fun thing to do yeah, I, I remember um, I had a lot of the Dover pattern books for things like Celtic knotwork. It was so soothing just to trace those lines around and around. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I thought I was going to get in trouble uh, yesterday at my desk when I was nearly busted coloring. Uh, <laughs> a little unwinding. Yeah, a little unwinding. So it, I guess, you know, listen to our, our nervous giggles here. We really do still think of this as like a, a kid thing, but grown-ups seem to not be in any way embarrassed to be going into stores and buying coloring books. No, by, by the thousands. Um, absolutely not. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, a lot of these books have, too, is that the format of them, they, they come in like a small portable format, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of these books do. And, and that's a lot of them in the title have, you know, portable with it. So, you know, you can throw it in your bag when you're on the subway, on your way home from work or maybe into work. Who knows? But or you have a bad meeting. Take a walk. Right. right. Bring do a little the coloring, color. you know, relax. A yeah. Bit. Now, I mean, we've talked about coloring as as kind of soothing and escape. What other what other types of coloring books are out there? I mean, do we see religion titles? Do we see what, what else do we what else are we seeing? There's there's a big piece of of the the market is in religion titles and inspirational mm-hmm. works uh, from all you know all faiths and backgrounds. Um, there are a, a number of licensed uh, products uh, like there's a Star Wars coloring book. There's mm-hmm. Disney Frozen coloring books. 
Um, there are some uh, uh, that kind of riff on on classic literature. There's one from Gulliver's Travels. There's one hmm. that we saw from that uh, takes scene from Brothers Grimm's and uh, Brothers Grimm fairy tales and mm -hmm. turns those into coloring, you know, uh, pages. So you know, again, whatever whatever floats your boat. Uh, hot dudes coloring book. That's right. one. Uh, I was going to ask what makes some of these for adults, but right, now right. I know. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a hot dudes coloring book. Uh, there's color my boobs is is one. So you're making your own pinup calendar. It's you, exactly exactly. There's, we, there are two in, in every color. Yeah, I mean, if you like Jamie Dornan, uh, there is a Jamie Dornan coloring book. <laughs> there's a James Franco coloring book. <laughs> wow. I'm not joking. You're there. Wow. Come, no, come I believe by my you. desk. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that that is that is amazing. So the market's just expanding and expanding. Yeah, yeah, getting bigger and bigger. And you know, I think um, obviously as we head into the gift buying season here, um, do not be surprised if in your stockings, uh, if you're into those, you know, there will be coloring books in them. Well, um, I, so I, it's I, only it's only getting bigger as as, as the holidays approach. I could see a lot of uh, office secret Santas uh, kind of popping up with these. So. Oh, yeah, totally. totally <laughs> right. I mean, it's just a matter of like, you know, whatever you're into. There's a coloring book for that. There's yeah. a coloring book for that. That's, which, that's the new there's an app for that. Yeah, that was my rejected headline for this story, by the way. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't go for that. The copy no? desk. Too bad. What are you going to do? What are you, gonna do? <laughs> you can't win them all, I guess. So do we have any sense of whether um, this trend is just going to be a brief thing, kind of flash in the pan? Yeah, well, the two years we'll be looking back going, <laughs> you remember that coloring book thing? Or uh, is this, this around to stay for a while? Um, you know, I think it'll definitely keep going through the end of the year. Um, if, you know, the holidays are a big driver um, of, of books in general. And, you know, this is, you know, this year's big, big surprise hit. Um I can see it going in, you know, we have a lot of books uh, that we're going to talk about in the future uh, or that are mentioned in the future for next week's issue that are, are publishing in, you know, February, March, up through April. We have a ton. I mean, we sent out the call for information on this. We got, which is our way of saying, hey, publishers, tell, her what's, tell us what you have coming up in this, in this area. Um, I mean, we got well over 100, you know, probably over 150 books came in. Wow. Um, so, you know, publishers aren't backing off from this at all, whether or not the public will, you know, who knows. But I think it'll, it'll stick around a little bit. Um, and one publisher, uh, I forget who it was, uh, was talking about their, their predicting the next, the evolution of coloring books. You heard it here first, guys. What's hey, next? Do we know what's next? Dot to dot. No. Oh. Connect no. the dots. There you go. Wow. So, so, so somebody basically adult. said, what else did I love when I was a kid? Yeah. Yep. Right. There yeah. you go. Right. Right. So <laughs> if you have any great, you know, ideas for a connect the dot book, now is the time. And then paint by numbers. And then, you know, three years from now, suddenly it'll be jigsaw puzzles all over again. There we go. There we go. It'll come uh, once again, something else that's difficult to replicate in a, in a digital format. That's true. Though it certainly hasn't stopped people from trying. No, no, no. There's, if there's money there, you know. So, so actually, I'm, now I'm wondering: Is there a thing where people like Instagram their colored coloring book pages? Like, do, does it all end up being digitized anyway? Um, you know what? I, I I would say yes to that. Uh, I, I before I came in here, I was I was looking up um, uh, you know interiors and, and and book covers and stuff. We're you know uh, putting the issue together, and there are a lot of of photos and scans on on uh, if you just do a Google image search of people who have like. You know, again, they, they've they've done the work of, of coloring in the page, and they're proud of their work, and they scan it and put it up. So Pinterest boards, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm sure. Um, actually, and, and a lot of these books, too, part of the marketing of them uh, is that, you know, they're on heavy quality stock paper. They're frameable. 
you know, uh, it's, it's a, it's a sort of, you know, it's an art project you can do and be proud of and frame and put on the wall. It's not just a, you know, like I did that page, let's hit the next and move on. That's really neat. Well, John, I'm going to be stopping by your desk. Uh, yeah, I might again, come right and, when we're done. Yeah. I might come and look through that <laughs> yeah, pile. Rose and I will be there. <laughs> we'll, we'll be right there. Thank you so much for coming on to give us a preview of the feature. And uh, like we said, it'll be on Monday's issue. Yes, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, keep, keep coloring. Keep those crayons sharp. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Always great to have you on the show, Johnny. Thanks so much. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Edmund Duvall, author of The White Road, Journey into an Obsession. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 